Hey everyone, welcome to the Teen Screen Feminism Podcast. I'm your host, Athena Bellis. This is episode three of season one of the podcast, which is exploring teen pregnancy in the cinema. If this is the first time you're tuning in, I really recommend going back to the first two episodes so you can follow the full journey through film history's representation of teen pregnancy. A brief note on today's episode. Today's episode includes discussions of pregnancy, abortion and miscarriage. Although these topics aren't discussed in graphic detail, listener discretion is advised. Spoilers for all of the films under discussion also abound. In today's episode, we're going to shift from last week's exploration of 1930s Hollywood, and we're going to launch right into the 1940s. And this is right in the thick of the production code, that censorship code, when it was right in full swing. But for me, what is so fascinating about the film we're looking at today is its relationship to that censorship code and how it managed to avoid the scrutiny of the censors with a number of fabulous evasive techniques. Really, really interesting to look at those. And I'll explain all of those in a little while. The movie is called The Miracle of Morgan's Creek, and it was directed by Preston Sturges. Michael Slowick, who writes really interestingly on this film, says that The Miracle of Morgan's Creek, and this is a direct quote from him, was widely regarded as one of the most transgressive studio films produced during the production code administration's heyday in the 1930s and 1940s. This film is a comedy and it was made in 1944, starring Betty Hutton as Trudy. And Trudy is a vivacious, fun-loving girl and she wakes up the morning after a party for the troops, married and pregnant. Kind of weird that she knows that she's pregnant one day after having sex, but okay, we kind of just like go with it. The only problem is that Trudy can't remember who she married or who the baby's father is. Now, the film never says that Trudy, you know, got drunk and that's why she went off and did this wild thing of getting married to a total stranger. You've been drinking. Who's been drinking? I never had a drink in my life. How dare you insinuate I've been drinking? Well, you certainly don't get what you've got on lemonade. Well, I certainly did. All right. There's a fairly silly excuse for her memory loss and very tipsy sort of drunken behavior. They say that she knocked her head on a lamp while she was dancing at the party. But this is the beauty of the censorship code. It's all subtext. The drunkenness is represented through the actor's performance. It's never said in words and therefore it's just left for us to interpret and it's it's very clear in many ways. Trudy doesn't know what to do about her situation because of course a scandal could ruin her family's reputation. Uh, her dad is a policeman who works in the local town. So Trudy's friend Norval, who's played by very lovely, charming Eddie Bracken, tries to come to her rescue, tries to solve this problem of being pregnant, being married, but not knowing who or where the father is. And in the middle of lots of sort of slapstick, comedic misunderstandings that has Norval ending up on the wrong side of the law, the two fall in love and they become parents to Trudy's newborn babies. So if you think back a little bit to the last episode, we saw how pre-code films 
navigated the topics of pregnancy, abortion, and miscarriage. And we looked at that particularly in representations of teenagers going through these issues. But what did the code have to say about these topics during the period in which the miracle of Morgan's Creek was made? Because in the production code, which you can read online for free, it's plainly stated, and this is a direct quote from the code, that scenes of actual childbirth, in fact or in silhouette, are never to be presented. David Kirby's research is really fascinating in this regard. He looked at a range of notes provided by the PCA, and it showed that there was even anxiety around showing people with pregnant bellies or physical changes of any kind, even in films that are about pregnancy. Although during my research, I have watched some films that do see actresses wearing things like oversized coats, even pregnancy smocks, and even carrying sort of oversized bags across the front of their bodies to indicate a pregnancy. In Miracle of Morgan's Creek, for instance, Betty Hutton is never shown with a pregnant belly. And what's really interesting is that she's filmed from all these totally bizarre angles and in really odd close-ups that focus only on her face. And then once she's given birth, we then get, you know, more medium shots of her. And of course, her waistline has miraculously instantly returned to its pre-birth state as she lies there in the hospital bed after having given birth. So as Christina Karnick writes on this film, this erasure of the pregnant body effectively creates in her an increasingly grotesque physical body, one which must be hidden from society and the audience. That's a direct quote from Christina Karnick. The words pregnant, giving birth or labour are never ever uttered during the entire film. The closest we get is when Trudy whispers very, very softly, I'm going to have a baby. I'm going to have a baby. You're going to have a baby. What do you mean you're going to have a baby? So the baby can be admitted to, but the process of its creation can't be. And the woman's body that undergoes this transformation of pregnancy and of labour is unrepresentable. It's literally off limits. It is banned. It cannot be shown. So as a result of this censorship, a lot of films during this period in Hollywood avoided showing pregnancy the pregnant body, and the realities attached to these things. And by doing this, it put up a boundary line around this kind of body. It created a sense that these are the sorts of things that shouldn't be seen, that shouldn't be talked about. It makes them off limits or even taboo and grotesque, so grotesque that we can't even look at it. Kelly Oliver reminds us in her book, knock me up, knock me down, images of pregnancy in Hollywood films, that during this period, and I quote directly from Oliver here, pregnancy was considered a medical condition that should be hidden from public view. Even prior to the medicalization of pregnancy, the pregnant body was considered a private affair and certainly not for public display. When not pathologized, the pregnant body was hidden from view because it was considered ugly, even shameful. Women were advised to lay in, which meant not leaving their homes or even their beds. And that's the end of that quote. 
David Kirby, who I just mentioned a moment ago, also found in his exploration of notes from the PCA that during this period in Hollywood, scripts were really routinely monitored and cut, changed for any representations of pain or fear or danger or discomfort even in pregnancy and birth. And it even went so far as to forbid mentioning that having babies is a process that includes labor. And the logic behind that was that they didn't want to put young people off from having families, from falling pregnant. On the topic of miscarriage and abortion, the MPPC stated that these were not proper subjects for theatrical motion pictures. It elaborated, and this is a direct quote, the subject of abortion shall be discouraged, shall never be more than suggested, and when referred to, shall be condemned. It must never be treated lightly or made the subject of comedy. Abortion shall never be shown explicitly or by inference, and a story must not indicate that an abortion has been performed. The word abortion shall not be used. End quote. So this is pretty intense marking off of territory. You know, do not go here. You are not allowed to talk about this. And so instead, during this period when people were making films about this topic, you instead end up hearing a lot about surgeries, procedures, bad doctors, but we never hear the words abortion or miscarriage. Another really interesting thing that happens, something that I find fascinating in film, is heavy pauses in the dialogue where there are no words spoken, but characters sort of meaningfully look at each other very sadly. And they let the viewer fill in the blanks of what can't be said in those moments of silence, in those moments of just glancing at each other. And so the viewer actually becomes very active in these films, in these movies that are censored, because we have to participate to kind of fill in the blanks of what they really want to say, but technically aren't allowed to say at all. And that's a really fabulous thing about this period is the position of the viewer and our role in making meaning in the movie. So during this time, everything is completely implicit rather than explicit. And even when abortions are more obliquely represented, the girl is, of course, punished, usually with death, sometimes with things like imprisonment, although that's a little more rare. And this is because the other element of the code is that any activity that is criminal, such as abortion, Uh, at that time, required it to be shown as wrong and a punishable offence. So just as we see with something like the adulterous femme fatale in film noir or the murderous criminal of the gangster movie, their crimes, as the code sees it and defines it, have to be punished. And as David Kirby writes about reproduction and the censorship code, quote, from the PCA's perspective, The only morally appropriate stories about motherhood were narratives rooted in a fantasy where pregnancy did not change women's bodies, childbirth was not painful or dangerous, and every woman wanted a baby. Their restrictive policy did not change until the 1950s. And actually, next time we come together on this podcast, we're going to look at a film from the very late 1950s that a little more explicitly discusses abortion, and there'll be more on that next time. So even in the context of all of this censorship, 
all of this regulation. This doesn't mean that filmmakers had their hands completely tied on the topic of pregnancy, even something as scandalous as teen pregnancy. And The Miracle of Morgan's Creek is really interesting evidence of this. So while the film was indeed, as you could imagine, subjected to a lot of revisions at the hands of the censorship board, both at the scriptwriting stage and also in the editing room after it was shot, they also managed to get quite a few things into the film under the censors' noses. Michael Slowick has a fabulous article, if you're interested in checking it out, about this movie. And in that article, he details several examples of how the production, including director Preston Sturges, evaded the rules, especially through the tactic of submitting the script for review just in little bits and pieces rather than as a whole. And Slowick writes that, in fact, the PCA didn't see any of the script until just five days before production started. And so that meant that by the time the PCA had actually read the scene and provided notes, the scene might have already been shot. And because they had budgetary restrictions, they couldn't change it. The other strategy that Slowick suggests Preston Sturges used and he's looking through the work of Matthew Bernstein to suggest this. He says that Sturges may have thrown in so much objectionable material that the PCA couldn't possibly catch all of it, and the film's story of innocent female sexuality on the loose was harder for the PCA to regulate. So we've talked a lot about rule-breaking. So what are the rules of the code that the film actually broke? Well, firstly, as Sloic notes, The code explicitly says that marriage has to be respected as an institution. But Trudy's post-party marriage and then her second marriage to Norval while she's also married to the unknown soldier turns marriage into a total joke. These scenes where Trudy is getting married and then married for the second time, they're all played for comedy. Certainly, we're not meant to be sitting there solemnly contemplating the grand institution of marriage, that's for sure. And importantly, what's interesting in that breaking of that rule of the code, Trudy and Norval aren't actually punished for their sexually and relationally transgressive behavior, even though the code says that so-called immoral acts like bigamy should be punished within the story. Joseph Breen, who was the head of the PCA at the time, wrote quite a long report detailing his objections to the screenplay, including these issues related to marriage and bigamy, which I've just outlined. Also, the references to Trudy maybe being drunk, which was changed to the bump on the head, as I mentioned a little earlier in the podcast. And he was also quite worried about some of the dialogue spoken by Trudy's little sister, Emmy because those lines appeared to be sort of quite sexually charged and he was concerned about showing a 14-year-old girl as sexually knowledgeable. Let's hear a little bit from Joseph Breen just to get a sense of the sorts of concerns he had at this time. It may interest you to sit in with us at a meeting of the Production Code Administration in Hollywood where we are working for finer and better motion pictures. Our job, as I see it, is quite simple. Nobody expects us to impose upon the public motion pictures which are dull or lacking in vitality or vigor. No intelligent person will argue 
that we are to make pictures only for children. We must have stories with power and punch and backbone. At the same time, we must be on the lookout for scenes or action or dialogue which are likely to give offense. The responsible men in this industry want no such pictures and will not allow these to be shown. You will understand that our production code administration is not a one-man censorship. It represents the considered judgment of many persons of wide experience and a sincere interest in making motion pictures. From the very beginning of the picture, we worked with producers, authors, scenario writers, directors, and all who are connected with the production to the end that the finished product may be free from reasonable objection and that our pictures may be the vital and wholesome entertainment we all want these to be. So Breen wasn't the only one who was really worried about this movie. There were also during this time wartime advisory bodies who commented and like provided notes on changes that needed to be made to films about the war or that made any references to the war in fact. And these bodies were very concerned about how soldiers were represented in this movie. So the soldiers being drunk while they're partying with Trudy is not to be suggested according to their notes. And there are several references in the movie as a result of this change to the fact that these soldiers drank lemonade that night and reported for duty bright-eyed and bushy-tailed the very next morning after the party. So it has to be made super, super clear that no, they don't drink, that they're sort of good all-American upstanding citizens. But Slowick points out something really fascinating, which is if Trudy's soldier, who she married and got pregnant with, wasn't drunk that night, then what's his excuse for marrying her, getting her pregnant, then just disappearing, never contacting her again, right? If he was drunk, it would be like a little bit more understandable, like he might not even remember. But if he is clear and sound of mind and does this to her, isn't that kind of like fucked? (laughs) So his lack of drunkenness actually creates a much more sinister picture than if he was drunk in many ways. And this is something that that wartime advisory body hadn't anticipated when they objected to that depiction of drunkenness in the soldiers. So it's really interesting how there are these unintended effects as well of censorship that come up. Preston Sturges came under quite a bit of pressure and perhaps even a little bit of attack um, when The Miracle of Morgan's Creek came out. And he responded to the people who were criticizing and complaining with the following comment. And it's a bit of a long one, but it's funny and therefore worth quoting at length. He says this, It just so happens that I intended the miracle of Morgan's Creek as anything but evil, meretricious and destructive of moral standards. I wanted to show what happens to young girls who disregard their parents' advice and who confuse patriotism with promiscuity. As I do not work in a church, I tried to adorn my sermon with laughter so that people would go to see it instead of staying away from it. For failing to make you laugh then, I apologize, but I refuse to plead guilty to contributing to the delinquency of minors. End quote. So there's a lot of concern around 
how this film will affect young people and potentially even turn them into juvenile delinquents. Really, really interesting. So while the film was so subversive in many ways, broke a lot of rules of the code, you can also see that it's a very conservative film. And that's quite typical of films of this period. We see them pushing the envelope and also very strongly clinging to a range of very traditional ideologies. There's this great study by Christina Karnick, which I've already referred to about this film. And the point is made by Karnick that at the start of the movie, we see Trudy as this sort of wonderfully robust and comedically unruly character. So she's super loud. She laughs uncontrollably. And you see her moving around in the space in a really sort of haphazard, unexpected way. And she makes a real spectacle of herself while dancing and singing and just generally enjoying herself when she goes to the party. But then once she falls pregnant, which is very early in the film, that laughter literally just stops. And as Karnik points out, almost every scene after that shows Trudy crying uncontrollably. And that's the case for every scene until her babies are born. And this is a direct quote from Karnik. Through the miracle of childbirth, Trudy is transformed from a wild, free-spirited youth into a serene and mature mother. This is the end point in a transformation that began nine months earlier, the morning after the party. The fullness of her transformation is encapsulated in a single, soft-focus, low-key, medium close-up of Trudy after the birth of the sextuplets. In this shot that Karnik's referring to, Trudy's previous bubbly energetic persona is simply gone and she lies calmly in bed with an angelic soft light cast upon her face. Her hair and her makeup are truly perfect, quite a sight to behold, and her pregnant belly is gone as I already mentioned earlier. And in this image of feminine perfection, there's a denial that the pregnant body the birthing body, any hint of blood or injury or pain, or in fact, even effort ever existed. So in this, we see this double bind of femininity. She has to give birth. She has to become a mother because that is what society values in women, what women must become. But at the same time, any evidence that the birth took place has to be denied and hidden from view. She has to become a mother, but she also has to return to the slender, perfectly put together hyperfemininity that she embodied before giving birth to six babies. I mean, how impossible is that? Fuck. She can't do one. One is not enough. She has to do both. And she must do it in such a way that makes it look like she's done nothing at all. All of the work is invisible and that's 100% the point. The point is to do the work of femininity and of motherhood, but don't let it show. You've got to put yourself through this potentially life-threatening and totally life-altering process, but do it with a smile. Become a mother, but stay desirable to men. And that is the impossible bind of femininity in this film and in so many stories about motherhood. 
Next week, we're going to continue our little journey through the decades. We'll be looking at a movie from 1959 called Blue Denim. And it's a really interesting case study in relation to this topic of censorship. Because at that point, the production code or the censorship code had been revised in a way to allow for films that included abortion a little more explicitly in their stories, but still in a limited and quite regulated way. We'll have a look at the effects of those limitations and regulations next time. Thank you so much for listening to the Teen Screen Feminism podcast. This podcast was researched and written and spoken by me, Athena Bellis. It was edited by Claire Gorn. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, I would greatly appreciate your subscription so you don't miss an episode. And I would also greatly appreciate a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening. Hope to see you next time.